Greg, I've, I've been, uh, you know, kind of <clears throat> watching you on, on Facebook and um, I just, and then of course, you know, I saw of what you were doing um, with the uh, doc, uh, Doctors Without Borders and it's just, uh, I don't know, it's huge to be in your presence. It's oh, not yeah. such a commanding presence. <laughs> no, but, but it's just like, wow, I can't believe, I can't believe I made friends, with, you know, with someone who's, you know, just doing such great work. You know, it's big Thank for you. me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, Greg, am I, tell me if I'm butchering your name. Cavarnos? Very good. That was good. Excellent. Perfect. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, welcome to the press. Uh, you've kind of been here since the inception. I, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I got to say, I, I agree with Susanna on this about uh, being excited, not just excited to meet you, but there's like, I was talking to someone recently in my organizings where we were talking about uh, shifting the paradigm around the, um, the classism of celebrity by celebrating each other to such degree that we bypass that with our very associations to each other. You know what I mean? And I've been doing that. And I noticed that now I end up getting starstruck around people that I'm connected to. Oh my God. (laughs) So I like, I totally fucking get it. I'm like, it's fucking Greg. Oh shit. I fucking got to get my shit together. Cause uh, what you do is pretty fucking badass. Um, uh, Instead of like Stepping on what you do, would you be down breaking down for everybody what it is that you do in your life that you've been focusing on? And that, oh yeah, specifically that focuses on the topic which we chose for today, which is the title of this podcast is Trauma and Healing in the Age of Anarchy. Okay. So, um, I mean, I don't know if you could call it chance, but... uh, I happen to live on uh, on the island of Lesbos since about 1996. It's a small island uh, in the east, uh, northeastern Aegean, um, and it's right off the coast of Turkey. Yeah, like like if I look out my window now, I can actually see the coast of Turkey. Because of its proximity to Turkey, it, it means it's become a, a, one of the main crossing points for refugees uh, escaping. Uh, from their countries via Turkey uh, into Europe, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the second time that I've that I've been involved in working with uh, refugees. The first time I was involved was around about two thousand and seven, uh, where we had uh, large numbers of uh, Afghan refugees escaping mm-hmm. uh, the American invasion, basically. Um, and then, I mean, uh, then the, the situation sort of calmed down for a while. And then in 2015, with the, with the 2000, end of 2014, beginning of 2015, with the war in Syria, uh, the refugee uh, issue came to the forefront again, yeah, um, with just unbelievable quantities of people um, when I, unbelievable quantities. I mean, uh, Lesbos is a small island, right? Mm-hmm. So it has about a total population of about sixty to seventy thousand people. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in uh, September or October of uh, 2015, we were seeing about 2,000 to 3,000 people arriving a day Jesus. from Turkey. Right. So at some point in time, the refugee population on the island was larger than the actual local population. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in the beginning, I was sort of reticent to, 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 to start working in the field of refugee with the refugees again because of my experiences the first time around. Um, but I got it. I mean, you could not you couldn't not get involved. Yeah. Um, everybody in the town of Mitilini, which is the capital of Lesbos, is involved in one way or another, even if it's just commercially, you know, just selling things to people or renting properties or cars or whatever. So the past um, five years I've been working with uh, Doctors Without Borders. I just have to clarify that anything I'm going to say today is not the position of doctors without understood. Right? Understood. This is a this is a space that is completely illegitimate of um, uh, certification. Uh, completely illegitimate of uh, qualification. We make no judgments of each other here. Okay, I'm just I make that clear because I mean I mean even though a lot of my experience. I mean, the past five years I've been working with this particular organisation, but I've gone through a number of different organisations before sort of settling down uh, with Doctors Without, Without Borders. And a lot of the time when I speak out, I mean, I'm just, I'm just talking about my experience. Right. I mean, you know, when you're an, when you're an employee, uh, you know, how much you are part of the organisation and how much the organisation is just using you, Yep. It's, you know, <laughs> even with yep. NGOs, you yep. see this happening, yeah? Yep. So anything that I'm going to say today is going to be my, my opinion Understood 100%. of the organisation. Yeah. Okay, so I, I'm just saying that a lot of the experience over the past five years at least has come from my work in the organisation as a psychologist working with uh, victims of torture, victims of violence and sexual violence, uh, victims of war. Jesus. Yeah. Um, it's been. Um, I mean, it's not. It's not easy um, working in this sort of in this field. Uh, it's not easy because there's also there's a lot of obstacles to the work which come from the political situation, the social situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I'm called upon to to help people overcome their torture experiences or the war experiences, while at the same time, because of the the government's uh, policies towards refugees, they're constantly being traumatised right. by their experiences in the camps that they're living as well, yeah? I mean, I've even had um, patients of mine that have been murdered in the, in the camps here. So... <laughs> Hmm. It's it's a handful trying to work with all this stuff, yeah? Lots of trauma, like tremendous amounts of trauma. How do you keep yourself grounded when you're surrounded by the amount and the not just the amount but the severity of the trauma that you experience and the people that you're serving? How do you keep yeah. yourself cohesive? Because I would imagine 
that the that that's incredibly difficult right yeah it's it's difficult i mean you can i'm the probably one of the longest running staff members in the organization that i'm working for currently yeah here right. on the island right right and i mean a lot of that has to do with the fact that i'm a local as well because i mean there's you know i, I have the support I wouldn't say of the community because the community's really turned against um, refugees and uh, people working in non-government organizations. That's a worldwide sentiment. Yeah, that's happening yeah. all over the place. And that was something yeah. I wanted to bring up. It's like you're finding yourself existing at the fulcrum of a conversation that people are expressing a lot of pretty vehement opinions and strong opinions about that they have absolutely no connection to. Yeah. At all. Um, it's, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't make excuses for the, the behavior which is starting to, to manifest in the community over the past year and a half or two years, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, I can understand that people are starting to sort of reach uh, some sort of limit in their ability to cope with what's been happening. Right. Because, I mean, it's been a long time, right? It's been since 2014. So we're in, we're in the seventh year now, basically. And um, like I said, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of benefits, economic benefits, especially for the community from the presence of the refugees here. I mean, when, uh, when the, the camp, the, the camp, I mean, the refugees are, uh, are currently living in a newer camp now because the previous camp, uh, they burnt it down, right? Wow. So what happened? <laughs> yeah. Now, when you say they, you mean the people living there or yeah, outside? Yeah, the people. They were just no, like, no, fuck, this, fuck this camp, we're burning it down? Yeah, basically. Right. Oh, well, basically what happened was with the, with the COVID, uh, they were put on lockdown and then they started to see that the COVID restrictions were starting to be relaxed for, uh, for the locals, but not them. But the, the, not for them, yeah. So right. they had to keep living in this. Uh, I mean, the the camp itself was designed for 3,500 people, right? And at the, at its peak, there were about 25,000 people living there. Hmm. So what you had was basically the refugee camp was the second largest city on the island. Jesus. So, and you had a... You know, you had this this city of twenty five thousand people with, you know, with five policemen having to police this this whole thing, right? No pressure. At any particular, yeah, at any particular point in time. So, of course, you know, there were gangs, there was prostitution, anything that happens in any other community, you were having happen in this particular community as well. But the, uh, you know the. The people that were living in, in these in these in this community, I mean, there were people ranging from, you know, there were Syrians. I mean, and the Syrians are not just one single set because within Kurdish people, yeah, mm -hmm. and then you had, and they are Sunni Muslims, right? Mm -hmm. And then you had the Afghans, and they are Shiite Muslims, mm -hmm. and then you had Central Africans. And most of them were Christians. And so you had this huge mix of people with all these incredibly traumatic experiences coming from these, uh, 
from these countries that had really serious problems, and then you just dump them all together in this ghetto, basically, Look and then the you put, yeah, you just put a fence around this thing, right? And then at some point in time, you know, with the COVID restrictions, people just got more and more and more frustrated. And it's sort of what sparked the, the riot and the burning of the camp was that they they built um, a, a COVID um, centre for, uh, how do you say, sorry, my English is starting to, to slip. Um, so they built a centre for COVID inside, in the centre of this this ghetto quarantine yeah? a quarantine center and people just they said what the fuck you know so they just started to burn things and they, they just burnt and burnt and burnt and burnt wow. like it just went for three days in three days they'd completely leveled the camp there was nothing left Jesus. and then suddenly you had twenty five thousand people living on the streets of the of the main town, right? Homeless. Mm-hmm. So, how? I mean, this is why I'm saying I'm not making excuses for the local population. I mean, I didn't turn into a racist because of this, right? Mm-hmm. But I can understand how somebody who was already sort of leaning in that direction, right, would suddenly react to this in a really negative manner, yeah. Right. Plus, you had a number of uh, local politicians feeding on this racism for for political profit. Right. Sounds familiar. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So it just kept building up and building up, and then like um, the other thing that happened, we had then the locals rioted at some point in time as well because the central government in Athens wanted to build a, a new center here on the island, a closed centre for refugees. The the locals were saying, as were the refugees, that, no, we don't want a new centre. What we want, and everybody, what the refugees wanted, what the locals wanted was for the refugees to be able to leave, Mm. right? So the central government from Athens sent in uh, six or seven squads of riot police and water cannons and everything and just tried to push it through like this, yeah? Just to, be just, clear, just to be clear about something. <laughs> yeah. When you said everybody wanted the refugees to leave, are you talking yes. about the including refugees? the refugees? Including the refugees. Yes, of course. Because okay, they're just trapped wanted to on the island. Right, yeah. right. It's like they're trapped on the island. Most refugees don't want to be here. They don't want to be on the island. They want to be either on the mainland in Athens, in the capital, yeah, or they want to continue their journey into the uh, central and northern Europe, especially mm. Germany and places like this, right? They want, to, they want to travel and find home or find home. Exactly. Home. That's really the root. Also, yes, of course. And also, I mean, there's already, I mean, at the beginning in 2014, all the borders were open. So as the people were arriving on Lesvos, they were getting a piece of paper in three days. Wow. You know, they were just getting their identification paper. They were getting on a boat. They were going to Athens, and then they were travelling by foot through um, northern Macedonia. Jesus. Uh, What's that climate there, like up, that they're travelling uh, uh, <clears throat> on foot? What's the area? Well, the luckily, this, this was in summertime. Okay. So it, it was okay, yeah? 
Um, and then uh, at, the, at the end of summer of 2015, they closed the borders mm. with uh, northern uh, Macedonia. And actually, the country, not Greece, Greece didn't close its borders. The other countries, Germany, Austria, Hungary, northern Macedonia, all these bo- uh, countries closed their borders, right? Mm-hmm. This is, I was working in northern, I went up to work in northern Greece with a, a, another medical organisation at this point in time mm-hmm. up on the border with uh, with North and Macedonia where, like, because people just kept, still kept arriving because right. they could still leave the island and they just kept building up and building up. And at some point in time you had just this shanty town of maybe 30,000, 40,000 refugees. The Northern Macedonian government had put a fence and put armoured cars and soldiers on the other side of the fence right. and everybody was just blocked there, Yeah. yeah? Um, now, this was for COVID restrictions? No, no, this is in 2015. This is 15, okay. Yeah, this so, is before COVID had even so, hit the news. Right, yeah. so this is, this is people closing down borders specifically because of an inability for some reason, either through desire or capacity, to allow for the movement of the people that had been traumatized and displaced. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So COVID hadn't even entered the picture yet, and that's where we're at. Uh, Shit. I know we still have four years of this happening before COVID hit, correct? Mm -hmm. COVID's been a past about year and a half to two years. And before that, I mean, the other thing that happened in the meantime, there was a, a deal made between Turkey and the European Union for Turkey to police its borders more strictly to restrict the flow of people coming from Turkey into the EU. Um, Along with that, they basically, they also trapped the people on specific islands and a a couple of specific locations on the mainland, on the borders between Greece and Turkey. So um, people just, you know, whereas in, say, 2014, 2015, they were here for three days, they got their papers and then they Mm travelled, people then started to get trapped for a year, two years, you know, waiting for some sort of decision on their applications, yeah? Mm -hmm. So um, it's just, it was just restrictions on top of restrictions on top of restrictions, yeah? So, So in a way you're talking about over time a calcification focused on borders, yeah. Calcification, meaning like a, a restriction of movement, right? Things are crystallized. Yes. And yeah. you haven't even gotten into the COVID yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so just like considering things, it seems like there's like a, a curve that's expressing, like a logarithmic curve that as, like as soon as COVID hits, it takes what's already calcifying and just exponentially increases the pressure. Yeah, yeah. And the government, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, that's all I had to say. Please go on. I just wanted so, to say, I mean, that's a trend, right? Like, that's a yeah, trend. Yeah, it's a trend. It just gets more, the, the, everything becomes more and more and more restrictive right. over time. Right. And the government just used COVID just as an excuse for right. more restrictions. Exactly. Yeah? And, and like, so, it's fucked up because that's, an, that's a time where restrictions are legitimate considerations, right? Exactly. So, the, the allowance for ideology to slide underneath that is so fucking historically tactical. Like it's, um, 
yeah, I just want to point that out and, and step away and la- allow you to continue. No, no, you're correct. You're very correct. I mean, and it also it doesn't it it doesn't help lend legitimacy to the to the health issues or to the health problems that exist because of the COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it it undermines any attempt to try and actually put something in place which is is in place not just for for the means of having some sort of uh, authoritarian control, but actually for health reasons. Exactly. And they conflate. We're seeing that in America big time right now around uh, just a massive amount of conflict around something as simple as wearing a mask. Like like that tiny little ritual of consideration is so charged with political conflict. It's kind of mind blowing. And and to take that into perspective, to take that into perspective that like that's a conflict that's happening with like pretty extreme veracity in America, which is also a pool of data generation that's creating um, actual tactical um, fuel to the political ideologies which are affecting the people who are taking much larger considerations around being restricted and have actually much more practical information to offer around being restricted and health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're just, they're, it's such an inverse communication loop, right? Like the people who are experiencing the actual experience are the, the quietest voices in terms of who's taken seriously in terms of, actual practical outcomes, right? And, and I can't help but think that, like, as I'm listening to aspects of the story, while they're very different and, and conflating any historical or geographic thing with another is not, it's not a one-on-one metric, seeing similarities and patterns of restriction and how restriction can, can be a complex set of restrictions, right? Even, like, it doesn't have to be just a, a giant gate on a fucking door. It can be tiny decision-making assumptions which build up over time, right? I can't help but see certain parallels in how I've experienced in witnessing homelessness in the cities I've witnessed in America. Mm-hmm. And like I said, mm-hmm. the scope and the causality, it's not one for one. I don't want to, to, dismiss, to dismiss or diminish the very real differences in terms of tactical analysis, but... The, the immediate separation of the homeless and the homed, you know, and the conflict mm-hmm. of those without homes and those with homes that exists right now on the planet has similarities across this conversation. And what you're mm-hmm. talking about is like one of the most worldwide focused aspects of that, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I, I don't, and I, so I, you know, my, I'm very invested in building bridges. And I, so what I want to do is I just want to say that, like, we don't have to diminish any aspect of this conversation to say that while this conversation is located in these specific places, this is still a worldwide conversation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's kind of where the second half of this podcast, I was, it would hope it would go is that is to show the work that you do. Right. Um, And the work that others like you in this worldwide conversation of meeting these restricted, these restrictions, these patterns and the trauma they create um, 
with actual human interaction and direct action in as many dimensions as possible to create something else that's not those things that mm -hmm. alleviates the pressures that we're seeing that cause the trauma, heals the trauma, and allows for different human emergence to take the space, mm -hmm. right? So since you've given us a broad picture, because I know there's so many hyper-focuses that are super critical that you could go into around all the details, without diminishing any of that happening, can we flip the conversation and talk about where, what healing looks like in the middle of all this? Because in the worldwide conversation that is evolved around this, there's going to be people that feel powerless and are powerless in some ways. And if our goal is to empower that, right, that's going to look like so many different things for so many different people. Uh, there's, there's so many uh, different tactics that we can share that given the fact that right now in history, we can talk to each other at such speeds across the planet, we might actually be able to help each other across the planet, you know? So in terms of healing, what are some of the things that you've found? And maybe this is related to being grounded. Like, where do you find healing in the midst of meeting all of this trauma on a regular basis that's so monumental and overwhelming? I would have to say... There's, there's a trend now. I mean, up, up until recently, we've, um, we've always classified these people as victims, mm. right? Uh, and now we're starting to, to talk more about talking about this group of people as survivors. Mm. Now, um, it, it might seem like, um, you know, it might seem like splitting hairs, Yeah. But I think from my experience, when I have a person across from me who's had these really horrendous experiences, mm -hmm. right, and mm -hmm. like mind-bogglingly right. <laughs> right. horrendous experiences, like I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to, to think what it would be like to go through these things, right? Mm -hmm. What I see, though, is I see somebody that has survived these things. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, like if I a lot of the time I say to my patients, if if I was in your situation, if I had to go through what you went through, I'm not sure that I would be here in front of you right, right. now, <laughs> right? right? And I don't consider myself. Uh, hold on, hold on, everybody. <laughs> Pause. Stop me for a moment. Okay. No worries. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't consider myself a weak person, right? I mean, uh, I, I'm a martial arts teacher, you know, I know how to fight, I know how to do this, I know how to do that, I've been in fights in my life, you know, whatever, right? But when I see what these people have gone through, it just, uh, I think for, for me, I gain from this experience as well. It's not just a matter of being uh, worn down yeah. by yeah. my contact with, with these people. Actually, I, I gain a lot, right? I mean, one thing I definitely gain is that I'm like, it, it makes you feel uh, that 
you know, that your life is actually not as bad as you think it is. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. I agree with that. So, that's, I mean, that's the first thing. You go, well, actually, I've got a lot of things to be thankful for, right? It also teaches you how precarious things are because, like, for example, some of the – I remember having one patient and um, he was filthily rich in, uh, in Syria. He had a, a steel factory. He, so he had a, a lot of money, right? And he used to use the, this, a lot of his money also to, to help the people in his community. He had like 12 kids and blah, 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 blah. And then he just lost it sort of overnight, yeah. right? And he, was, and he left everything behind. I mean, okay, he managed to get his kids out and his wife. And it was him, his kids, his wife, and everything else that he had, all this material wealth that he had, his houses, his factories, this and that, gone, just gone in a second, right? So this starts, the thing that that teaches me also is to start to, to focus less on material circumstances and to, to look a lot more at um, relationships, yeah? like uh, personal relationships and see the, the value in a personal personal relationship. Again, though, I mean, again, this is, it's, this is, this is difficult. I mean, I, you try to put it into practice, but, you know, you always fall into these habits. So I pick up this, this being thankful what, for what I have, placing more importance on personal relationships than on material satisfaction, Yeah. Exactly. Really appreciating the the strength that people have and people that under other circumstances, if you were to see them, you go, oh, I don't know this guy. He doesn't look like he punches way through a wet paper bag or something stupid like this, yeah? And, and instead of like, and then suddenly you find out that, you know, they spent three years in an underground prison cell being tortured and have come out of this Okay, fucked up, yeah. <laughs> but, but still relatively sane considering what they'd gone through. So uh, you start to appreciate the, the, the people's capacity for, for survival as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I mean, the, the question was, you know, what, what do I do to get to be grounded, to be able to put up with it? Well, actually my patients are the ones that ground me because they show me the, the, the reality. Yeah. And I mean, the reality beyond just all the sort of external material conditions of having nice clothes and, you know, having a, a nice car or something like, and a nice house to live in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, I mean, it's not, it's not easy having to listen to, to these to these really horrific stories, okay, and it, <laughs> and it triggers things inside of you as from you know from your own personal experiences as well, but it actually gives as much as it takes. Strange, weirdly enough, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can relate. Uh, uh, my experience in just what I call service, because it looks like a lot of different things, you know. I, I, yeah, that's that's what it comes down to for me is service it, it it it's like going to the gym you know it's like it's gonna leave me 
incredibly tired <laughs> and it's going to leave me aching and stretched. Right. And it's going to leave me energized and I'm going to be grateful. I did it and I'm going to do it again the next day. I'm going to keep doing it. And the results of my very body will show me the power of a human body and how it can just shape to almost anything it wants to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get that and I feel that and I love it. That's at least that's how I look at it. Right. It's just service. And that, the cool thing is that's accessible for everybody. It really is yeah. like anybody yeah. doesn't matter where you are. You can do that for something and you can hit that feedback loop, you know? Um, and here's the thing though, is that people weaponize that. This is what I'm running into a lot. People weaponize that to sidestep the conversations that are critical around that, around empathy and compassion. Right. Mm-hmm. And because I've heard people frame compassion as the creation of space to lessen people's suffering, right? And when we talk about splitting hairs, when I I was first presented with that information from someone, I was like, yeah, it doesn't feel right to me because to me, compassion is the collective experience of suffering. Uh It's what we do after that is what, our actions from compassion, but compassion Mm -hmm. isn't about creating a cool party to feel really good instead of suffering. Mm -hmm. Right. It's about suffering period. It doesn't mean like the creation of suffering. It means being in the suffering and, and adapting from that. Right. And I think that's where like privilege insulation is so dangerous when you get Mm -hmm. entire populations of Americans that are like, don't have any idea how to relate to what's going on with these larger patterns and they project it on their smaller patterns in their life. And they create this torrent of information that just feeds the very processes of conflict that are the, the thing that they're actually complaining about in the first place. You know? mm-hmm. um, and so, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's no mystery to I think everybody here that this is an anarchist podcast, right? Like, all of us have met in, in anarchist circles discussing anarchist uh, practices and, uh, and approaches and, and, and sharing each other's experiences around, around anarchy. And so I just kind of wanted to put that out as a, 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 a thought consideration for you all is that, is it safe to say, and where would this create conflict in the conversation of anarchy, that, that a fundamental aspect of anarchy that's not moralized. It's just a, a, a fundamental organizational tactical acknowledgement is mutual aid, mm-hmm. right? And f- so part of that mutual aid is going to inherently have to be and include, it's going to have to include the skills and capacities and talents of empathy and compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, would you say that's like a primary anarchist fundament? Yeah, um, you can't, I mean, the reality is, I mean, that the working for non-government organizations can be a career path, and it, it can be a career path that actually can give you quite a bit of money, mm-hmm. right? So NGOs run into the same limitations 
as any other sort of corporations or organizations or businesses under capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because okay, I mean I I get I get a wage mm-hmm. for what I do. Right? Mm-hmm. Now some of that wage I put back into into my work, not not through the organization, but just personally. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if I have if I have a patient and they don't have shoes and I can't find shoes for them through another non-government organisation, I'll just go buy them a fucking pair of shoes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to die of starvation if I do it, right? Right. 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 But it's st- I'm still coming from a place of privilege, though, because mm-hmm. I, I, ha- I still have the capacity to do that. Because I'm in a position of privilege, because I'm the one I'm the, in the in the host country, right. because I'm the one that it's employed. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, NGOs, some NGOs. I mean, there's some not. Sorry, I won't talk in acronyms. There are some non-government organisations mm-hmm. that uh, work on anarchist principles. One of those organisations is No Borders, mm-hmm. for example, right? Um, and uh, Food Not Bombs, for example, is another organisation. Um, but I think the, the problem with the societies that we live in, or the, the problem with the, the society that we live in, because we all basically live under capitalism, is that anything you do becomes part of the system. Yeah. Like it's, it's almost <clears throat> impossible to, uh, impossible. I mean, there are there are certain points where you can sort of jump in and sort of break out of the system, or at least fall between, mm-hmm. you know, the, the interlocking sort of chain mm-hmm. or this barrier which is the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the, I, I actually what I this is in the in the eighties. This the there was the English band Chumbawamba. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, anarchist, uh, anarchist punk band, right? And uh, in the eighties, the big thing was the uh, starvation in uh, in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. And then there was this this whole band aid thing where all these big names in the in the uh, musical industry got together and sang songs all together to to make money to 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 to, to give uh, to give to to you know to to help with the starvation which was happening in the Central Africa. And they, they so Jumble Wumba put out a, a, the name of uh, an album called uh, "Pictures of Starving Children Make Millions of Dollars," right? <laughs> and I think, and I think, I mean, what, what, what? And then I was thinking about this. I, mean, I love the fucking band, right? <laughs> and I was thinking, I was thinking that uh, pictures of fleeing refugees make millions of dollars for NGOs, mm-hmm. for non-government yep. organisations, yep. just mm-hmm. like pictures of starving children back then made millions of dollars for people in the music industry. So non-government organisations are an industry. Right. Yep. So the question is, but how can, you, how can you be effective outside of the industry? Like let's, I mean, you know, in the beginning there were a lot of organisations here that were volunteer organisations. Mm-hmm. And what, what I would do is outside of my working hours, I would give time or money to these different volunteer organisations, which I knew were not doing it just for the cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all gone. 
Mm. Right? Mm. <laughs> They're all go, I'm still stuck here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm stuck here. This is where I live, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Seven years on, I've seen all sorts of organizations come through, anarchist organizations, Christian organizations, you name it, yeah? Mm -hmm. But the only ones that managed to stick it out were the ones that were making some money from the from the situation. So the thing is, I mean, and, and a lot of the time, and you've seen me argue with people a lot of the time, like the basis of revolution is community. Mm -hmm. And the basis of any sort of relevant action is community. If you don't have community, you can't do shit, mm -hmm. right? All you can do you is, is authority. It's all you can do is authority. That's the only other option. If you're not doing community, what is it? It's authority. So, I mean, there's, I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, I, I always, I mean, it's come to the point, I don't know if I've, no, I wouldn't say that I've become cynical, right? <laughs> I still, I still, I mean, you know, it's, I started off thinking about anarchism and anarchy when I was like 16, 17 years old, mm -hmm. right? And now I'm, I'm 52. Mm -hmm. I still believe that anarchism and anarchist systems and anarchy is mm -hmm. the correct way to run a society. Mm -hmm. I still, I haven't, I haven't outgrown this, yeah? Right, <laughs> right. Agreed. Same. No, no plans. Just, no plans to anytime soon. <laughs> you're just, you're just more wise. That's all. And uh, you know more yeah. <laughs> how to, how to make anarchy work. You know better than than when we did when we were 17 or because mm. you've done it you've been doing it still doing it <laughs> still doing it that's why having you on here is such a gift and a blessing you know like I i'm all about connecting things man interconnection that's that's how our brains work it's how systems work is they inform through interconnection and i think uh, uh, yeah go on sorry i mean riff off that please I mean, because for me, I think we got to get away from this idea of ideological purity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, we got to get out of this this sort of fundamentalist thinking mm -hmm. that uh, this uh, something is only anarchist if it's like this and this yeah. and this, right? <laughs> right. And you're like, this. Well, welcome to the real world. Here's the real world. Mm -hmm. Okay. Compromise. Uh -huh. <laughs> Got to do something. Uh -huh. Can't wait for the revolution. Where's the community? I don't fucking see it anywhere. Uh -huh. I mean, okay, yeah. you get a, some people, they throw some ideas at each other and blah, 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 blah. But you know, I don't see anything. I mean, when I, when I think about anarchist community, right, I think about what's happening in Kurdistan, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. Now that 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 is a real example of anarchist community. Want to break right? that down for our audience real quick, just in case people haven't uh, been aware of it. <sighs> Not aware of what's happening in Kurdistan. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing then? <laughs> I mean, no, nah, no, nah, I, I know, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, um, I first travelled. Um, I first travelled to the to Turkish part of Kurdistan. I mean, Kurdistan was broken up between uh, three or four major countries. Yeah, it was broken up between Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran. They just carved 
it into little pieces, yeah, mm-hmm. and said, right, this one's now, it's not Kurdistan anymore, it's Iran now, it's Syria now, it's this now, it's that now, right? Mm-hmm. So I travelled into the Turkish part of Kurdistan in the, in the mid-90s, and this is when the, the PKK was like at its peak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Otsalan hadn't been captured yet, so, you know, they were, it was still, you know, they were, they were, they were rocking. In, in Turkey, yeah. Turkey had come out of the, the military dictatorship as well, so it was loosening up to an extent politically. But, like, you know, once you crossed halfway across Turkey, got past Ankara, it, you you felt, you could see that you were now in a military state. Right. Right? So there's that part of it. Then there's the part of uh, Kurdistan, which is in, in northern in northern uh, Iraq, mm. this this the part of which is in northern I- I- Iraq, of course, is is more conservative. It's mm. uh, you know it's it's more nationalistic. Mm. It's yeah, it's okay. It's it's definitely worked hard for its autonomy and it's gaining it. Yeah, but it's a different sort of model. Then you have the part where Kobani and Rojava and all these these Mm -hmm. uh, towns are in uh, northern Syria, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what happened was the PKK was a Stalinist party. Mm -hmm. And then uh, at one point in time, they captured Ocalan thanks to the Greek government, Mm -hmm. right? The government, Greek government gave Ocalan to the Turkish authorities, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, And what happened was Ocalan, while he was, and he's still in jail since uh, 1998 or 99, I don't remember, he started. He started reading Bookchin, ah. and then he had he had a realization, <laughs> and he saw the light. <laughs> and so he changed. What he saw was that the this idea of the Kurdish nation state was just being used by imperialist powers like America and Russia and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Was and they were weaponizing the Kurdish people in order to cause instability in the Middle East. Right. And he saw this very clearly with what was happening in northern Iraq, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. where the Peshmerga uh, government is basically funded by the Americans. So he said, no nation state. Mm. Throw the national, national shit out, Excellent. right? Excellent. Turned it into council communism, like the ideals, mm-hmm. and there was this... Then, I mean, then the, the civil war started in Syria and the Kurdish people in, in Syria took up this idea and actually set up self, sort of um, self-governing towns and provinces mm-hmm. and fought wars against ISIS and they fought against the fucking the Syrian government mm-hmm. and beat them. They, fought, they were the first ones to... To, to make ISIS actually lose and begin to retreat, mm-hmm. and are currently fighting a, a war against uh, Turkey. Turkey is using uh, its its borders with northern Syria to make attacks. Uh, like it's basically invading uh, northern Syria, Turkey, mm-hmm. and it's using ex ISIS militia. Jesus, alongside its uh, regular Turkish military forces. And yet, even though I, when, when all this started, I thought, oh, fucking, that's it. They're finished. 
There's, they're not going to be able to survive this, and yet they're still surviving. Right. And yet they're still running on a model of self-governance. Right. And yet they're still working outside of the model of the state. So it can happen, right? Mm-hmm. It, can, it can be done. It quite clearly can be done. What I would want to know more is what was the what what was it caused the the Kurdish people in this in the region to bind around this idea? Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. because yeah. it's it's it was it's easy to bind around the idea of a nation state because we yes. see it everywhere. Right. Yeah, it's just the right. way that shit happens. It's yeah? a brand. <laughs> exactly, and it's a, it sells really well. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what caused the people in these regions to bind around this idea? I mean, it, you know, the Kurdish people have been fighting for for like self determination for a really long time now. Yeah. yeah? Mm-hmm. But ideologically, they just flipped. They just flipped from a statist, like a Stalinist, Maoist model. They just flipped into into an anarchist and council communist model. They vibrate so close together. It's really just the authoritarianism that's ingrained in people that I think causes that little quivering needle to bounce one way <laughs> or the other. You know, it's like at some point when someone gets up enough in that conversation, they're going to go, you know what? I'm either going with the established power or I'm going with this other thing that is a completely different feeling of approaching this entire thing. No, and I think there's a leap that happens there. Sometimes people are pushed into that leap. Some people push themselves into that leap. But that seems to be a pattern. You see it in America with how um, we're watching, at least I'm seeing, sure others are, the the rise of the self-identification of fascism, right? Not just sublimated fascism, not just some Umberto Eco multiple points kind of creating it in a gestalt, but like actual identified, you know what? I think that fascism is the way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we had that here in Greece. I mean, we've, we're still on the tail end of that. We even had we had the the neo Nazi Golden Dawn Party mm-hmm. in Parliament, mm-hmm. right? And it was only after the the murder of the anarchist uh, hip hop artist Killer P mm-hmm. that the, the Sorry, it's it's not. You can hear something like guns going off. It's not guns. <laughs> Noted. So it was. It was Sounds only like after. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's Easter, and they this is how they uh, <laughs> oh, this is this is yeah. how they celebrate the resurrection at twelve o'clock. They let off uh, fireworks. <laughs> Explosions for Jesus, huh? Explosions yeah. for Jesus. <laughs> So that's, that's, after after the murder of the hip hop artist Killer P, mm-hmm. the the and because the the neo Nazis were actually taking a lot of the political supporters of the Conservative Party, which is in power now, it was drawing them away from the Conservative Party. So they saw that they were losing votes. Mm-hmm. That's when the Conservative Party decided, oh, okay, well now they've killed a Greek person. Up until now, they were just killing migrants. Right. We got to do something, and they right. use that to criminalize Golden Dawn Party and mm. put them all in jail after about five year trial. Mm. Right, so we we saw that like people just turned it just went straight towards Nazism. I mean, it mm. was Nazism. It wasn't even fashion. There was nothing soft about it. Mm. It was Zieg Heils 
It was fucking swastikas. Mm -hmm. It was the whole fucking thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just straight into that. No. Mm -hmm. Straight into it. Yeah. Just straight the double into down. <laughs> yep. And, yep. Uh, and, you know, you saw like the neo-Nazis working in tandem with the riot police against the protesters that were protesting against the austerity measures that were trying to be brought in and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of almost sounds like the Proud Boys. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Same pattern, different, different architectural makeup because of the power structures and the patterns and the historical patterns of those power structures. It's also because, I mean, uh, Greece is not... It's not like it's not a multi multicultural nation. Well, it is, but it's it's not a colonial nation like America is. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So fascism has been around. I mean, the first fascist dictatorship in Greece was the Mepaxas dictatorship, which was in 1936. So that came around the same time as Mussolini and our favorite Austrian and all of those. Right. Mm -hmm. So fascism is not. It's nothing new. Right. Here in Greece. And then we had the military dictatorship, which was a nationalist dictatorship from uh, 64 to 72, 73, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, so in a reaction against that, you know, socialism became really sort of uh, trendy. Mm. But then socialism brought us to, to austerity. Mm -hmm. it, it brought us to, to the recession. It brought us to all these different things. So, again, the pendulum swung in the other direction. Right. And people said, oh, let's try Nazism again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it's, it's just it's got to yeah. be, be some kind of emotional catharsis for those folks, right? That's the only thing I can imagine. Like, at I, some point, someone has to be like, I just, this is what I really feel good about, <laughs> you know, is like destroying a whole bunch of people. No, it's easy. You just go. There to blame, and yeah, then that's it. You don't have to. You don't have to think at all. Yeah, yeah? it's like well, who's to blame? The migrants are to blame. What the fuck? How are the fucking migrants to blame? The migrants have only been here for five years. You know, right. exactly. Like, what did they do? <laughs> they tipped the balance of their existence <laughs> in their proximity to us, and well, our blame to them. <laughs> you know. All our problems were them before. They were just farther away. Now they're closer, so they're th that belief is amplified even more and just projected on the patterns at hand. Sounds I like, think we'll say that. Yeah, yeah. So, go on, Susanna. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, it's almost like, oh, no, they're coming to enrich our culture quickly. Let's <laughs> demonize them while we're at it. You know what I mean? It's kind of what it feels like. <laughs> Mandatory square dancing for everybody. I think, I mean, the other thing is the way that the government uses it is like, um, you know, if you don't, if you're not a good boy, you're going to end up like them. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. And everybody's like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get behind these guys because I don't want to end up like them. Right. Exactly. I mean, and we saw the collapse of the middle class during the recession here. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of really fucking pissed off people after this, and they were all looking for someone to blame. And you know, we had in the meantime we had the the left wing gov the left wing government of Syriza, which just applied all the austerity measures anyway, 
So you had the right-wingers were applying the austerity measures with glee and happiness and riot police, and then you had the left-wing applying the austerity measures going, oh, we don't really want to do this, but we're going to screw you anyway. This is for and all of our own just like <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a softer, quieter blow of, you know, screwing you over. I mean, it, it, it's it's always the right wing. They're they're right up front about it. You go to the, I guess you could call it the left, uh, you know, side where they're just like, yeah, we're just going to soften the blow. And then that's it. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. these people are still caught. I mean, it, there's nothing helping these people, you right. know, they're just still caught in between that or Mm-hmm. Two party stuff. I mean, we had there is a, a large, a quite um, strong anarchist movement in um, in Greece, right? Yeah, and um, it tends to be centered around the inner city suburb of Exarchia, oh. which is which had a lot of sort of self organized uh, centers and cafes and bars and stuff like that, right? And uh, you know they've been fighting hard. And not not only against the police, but also against organised criminals trying to make inroads into the area, you know, mm. through the sale of drugs and stuff like that. So there's something that's that's building there. There's something happening there. But my my problem is, and this is the problem that I've had, you know, ever since I got into anarchism as a theory, mm-hmm. is that it it tends to be reduced to a lifestyle. Yeah. You you listen you listen to a particular type of music, you wear a particular type of clothing, you know. And you know, when I think about the roots of anarchism, if you think about something like the international workers of the world, the wobblies, mm-hmm. or if you think about what happened in Spain, mm-hmm. or you think about what happened in the Ukraine and all these historical uh, situations where anarchism actually, or you think about what's happening now in in uh, Kurdistan, mm-hmm. you can see that it's not it's not a lifestyle thing, mm-hmm. and it, the the arguments that I get into a lot of the time is that with the more um, sex pistols oriented uh, <laughs> anarchists, right? Is that the fashion anarchists. Yeah, if yeah, the, the poser type anarchists. If you don't make links with the community, and, and the community includes the, the Mister Middle Class with his uh, wife and child, and you're never going to have a political movement which is going to actually be capable of making any real change. It's always going to be really small, really limited, and really easy to be confined and destroyed once it gets just a little bit too far out of control. Mm-hmm. So, for example, at some point in time when the when the, uh, when the Nazis were running around doing graffiti all over the city and stuff like that, I said, look, guys, I reckon we should, uh, we should go rent a high-pressure water uh, like a machine, you know, it's one of these... Mm-hmm and detergent and stuff like that, we should go clean up the, the Nazi graffiti around the town mm-hmm. because, A, you're stopping the spread of their propaganda, mm-hmm. and, B, you're showing to the community that you, you are actually capable of giving something to the community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and people looked at me like I was a fucking idiot. 
What are you talking about, Greg? I have plans this Friday. Me, me and my friends have been planning our fun little party for months now. I think I have time to go rent a power washer? I got kids. What are you talking about? I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to go listen to the Sex Pistols just to, just to get over this nonsense. I just wish yeah, I'm at a point where I'm like, please, someone like join me or someone help me like, you know, <laughs> let's get together. And that's like where my, you know, I, Greg, you're absolutely right. It's, it's all about community and we need to show them, you know, we're not like, especially here in the U.S., we have a reputation for being rioters and burning stuff down and stuff. But, you know, like this summer when we had like the George Floyd protests, a lot of us went out and cleaned up, you know, graffiti and stuff like that, especially from the right end. And it just seems like here, I feel like, I feel like at some point, some American anarchists are just very apathetic. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the other thing, yeah, the other thing that, that I, that I used to talk, you know, this idea, we got to, I was in Australia, right, when back back in my youth in the anarchist movement in Australia, and everyone's going, smash the state, smash the state. I'm like, look, dickhead, the state in Australia provides you with education, the hospitals, the roads, everything, right? I mean, because it, there was a really quite a strong welfare state in Australia as well, and it was actually doing, like, you know, at some point in time, I was liaising in my in my in my work as a social worker. I was liaising with the uh, LGBT uh, unit of the police force in wow. in in Australia in Melbourne, wow. right? So they they had things like this, right? Wow. So I said to, I was going to my friend. I, I just so I can clarify though, when you say the LGBT <laughs> wing, are you talking about the police force that was specialized specifically to? To interface with LGBT people, or is it like a special squad? No, 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 this police, or was it what both? you said? What you said? There was a special. There was, you know, there was a special group which was for liaising and working with the LGBT community to, That's you know. Okay, so and then I'd go back to my friends and say, look, when you go out and you say smash the state, you got to you got to be a little bit clearer <laughs> about, about about what you're saying to people because you're just fucking. When you have a state that's functioning and it's functioning well, mm-hmm. to say smash the state is just counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. When you say smash the state, everybody's going to look at you and goes, what's, what's this fucking idiot saying, right? Mm-hmm. The state's giving me everything right now. Please tell us exactly what you mean. Do you want free education? Do you want, you know, free health care? What is it? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But it's given me free education, it's given me free health care, and it's given me unemployment benefits, and it's allowed, you know, so what does it mean, you know, to say smash the state under that circumstance? Mm-hmm. Now, if you have an incredibly repressive state, mm-hmm. like a, like we have now, for example, in, in Greece, mm-hmm. right, and, you know, like the, the the state's response to anything here in Greece is to send in the riot police. It's like, COVID, send in the riot police. Uh, you know, <laughs> this, send in the riot police, crackheads. Yeah, that, this is the way to do everything. Then it makes sense mm-hmm. to talk about smashing the state. Absolutely. Then you say, look, this, this is the state is the source of oppression. Mm-hmm. 
it's a source of violence, it's a source of this, it's a source of that, right? Mm-hmm. What, what does it mean to say smash the state in, in America where, you know, you have like Republicans saying, yeah, we want to get rid of the state? Mm-hmm. You know, then you give the, the view to people outside looking yeah. at this, what you're saying, that actually the anarchists and those fucking lunatics over there are saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're both talking about reducing the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, what is the reduction in the state meant to me as a citizen? It means I can't get free health care. Mm-hmm. It means I can't, I, you know, there's a lockdown, but I'm not getting any sort of bonus to be able to keep my family alive. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, we've got to get out of this sort of ideological purity mm-hmm. thing, you know, and especially we've got to get out of this, 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 this just using um, catchphrases. Mm-hmm. NLP. Action. NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. <laughs> that's, that's literally, I'm not, I didn't make this shit up. I'm just reporting, right? So <laughs> NLP is the term created uh, and it has a, a wild long history that I don't want to, delve too long into but it's basically the packaging of the perception of anarchist self-service metabolized as a product to teach people to actualize themselves in a capitalistic environment right okay right so it's 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 all catchphrases right oh i'm not i'm not a failure at life i can i because i have a vision and I can make the best business that my vision is ever, you know what I mean? There's no question uh-huh. about whether the business is relevant or not to the vision. It's all packaged. Uh-huh. It, it's, you know, it's the same tools of like self-perception that can be used by anybody for anything, uh-huh. right? You throw up enough catchphrases in the right direction, you, you're going to get Nazis. You throw up <laughs> enough catchphrases in the right directions and you're going to get an underground culture of people exchanging resources, right? Uh A black market or a black culture. You throw up another enough catchphrase. Point is it's all branding, right? And so when when you say we got to get out of these catchphrases, I I the critical truth of that exists in the paradigm right now where we like we live in the age of illusion. Uh Right? Like it's a lot, there's a just orders of magnitude more information for almost any individual to consider around any number of things far outside what we've ever experienced before. Mm-hmm. So you, I see this in a lot of just inherent, and that when I say reactionary, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I mean it as like mm-hmm. a mechanical inherent function of a person being exposed to new information, specifically mm-hmm. information that challenges preconceived notions and assumptions, right? Um, so when you talk about getting away from these catchphrases, it, I get excited, but it's kind of one of those, it, it, this is kind of reflective of the conversation we've been having. It's like, well, if you say mm-hmm. smash the language, what are you replacing it with? What, what are we losing with the language or not, right? And that's where I'm, I'm excited to have conversations um, mm-hmm. around you know, how, how code switching is important in, mm-hmm. in, our, in our desire to build bridges across many different thresholds of mm-hmm. code manipulation and interpretation, mm-hmm. right? And by code, I don't even mean digital code. I mean, just like language yeah. code, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the periodic 
patterns of information that are changed by other periodic patterns of information and impact. Um, like we have the power to use language to generate power in organization, right? Um, I think, I mean, I think if there's one thing that we really have to underline as anarchists and to underline it continuously mm -hmm. and to make it probably the focus of, uh, of an anarchist ideology is this, and bringing it back to what you said originally, is the concept of mutual aid. Yeah. Mm. Right? Because mutual aid destroys immediately the the idea of exchange. Mm. Right? And this is why I always, and you've seen me have arguments <laughs> with uh, with uh, anarchists that believe in, in market systems and I stuff like you. that. Because, like, as soon as you set up a market and, you know, I've, I've yet to see an anarchist, uh, like, that believes in, in, uh, in market exchange actually answer the question, what happens when I don't have resources to trade, right? Oh, and, I've heard the answer. They go, oh, go get resources. Simple as yeah, that. Yeah, okay. I'll get killed. I'll get killed. So this is, this, I think, but mutual aid gets, gets you out of this straight mm -hmm. away, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it, when you have mutual aid, there's no sense of exchange. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really, really important because in capitalism, exchange is everything, right? Mm -hmm. When you have mutual aid, this, the idea of profit also goes out the window as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So and, and also when you have, when you talk about mutual aid, the idea of the state, is also unnecessary. Mm -hmm. You don't you don't need the state. Mm -hmm. You don't need mm -hmm. a market mm -hmm. to have mutual aid, right? Mm -hmm. All you need is to have individuals that are willing to to assist each other. Yeah. And then and then it's and then and that's where the and then like going back to this idea of compassion that you were talking about. I think the basis of mutual aid is compassion mm -hmm. because it's an understanding of other people's mm -hmm. needs. Right. So. Oh, I'm sorry, Tyler, please. Um, yeah. Um, hi, Greg. Uh, I, I didn't know. Uh, but um, so I just wanted to return a little bit to you. You were talking about smashing the state and then you described um, <laughs> certain, um, certain functions that people benefit from, like school education, uh, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I wanted to, um, you know, bring in the idea of the state versus community organizations. Like, mm -hmm. so if when when I think of the state, I think of the Montevideo Convention of Statehood in 1933, which mm -hmm. says a state is defined as one uh, territory with defined uh, population, a permanent population a defined territory, a government, the capacity to enter into relationships with other states. And I, I like to add in the, um, having a monopoly on legitimate use of, um, of force or violence. Um, so this is what I think of when I think of a state that I want to quote unquote smash. Um, I, but as you said, like, I don't, like this idea that 
that that means every government function is necessarily evil. Like, so that's why I like to think of these things outside of the state, like community organizations, like hospitals that are all communally owned, you know, so I, I, I guess I haven't run into too many people that um, I've actually heard say smash the state. Uh, you know, I hear that sometimes in like uh, pop culture. Um, well, I've, I've said it a couple times in my youth. <laughs> no, I, I, I've only heard it like, you know, honestly, I've only heard it on like TV where there's like, you know, these uh, pop punk people like, yeah, smash the state. Like, um, I'll, I'll say smash the state. I still do. And I stand by it. Oh. And, and I can break it down for what that means to me. Uh, mm. First and foremost is that it means I smash the state in my head. Mm-hmm. And I smash the part of me that, that prescribes any, uh, any affixed notion of fairness that steps me out of the presence of, of compassion and service, right? Mm-hmm. Like no matter how we organize, people are going to hurt. They're going to get hurt. and They're going to hurt each other for mm-hmm. all kinds of different reasons. And from a harm reductive standpoint, and if someone who's invested in service as a pattern, I know that there is no utopia that's going to take that out of my personal, personal yeah. governance, right? Like people are going to yeah, fall Yeah, you can't off. rely on people to be great to each other. I mean, yeah, conflict's going to happen. It's inevitable. But, mm-hmm. but the, our human nature, which is to learn and adapt, can meet. Mm-hmm. At this point in my life, I'm convinced literally anything, you know. Yeah. So uh, I have like great hope and faith in that personally. Yeah. That, that smashing the state, starting with the self, mm-hmm. starting with the idea of like what I think the state is that I've assumed must be true, at least challenging that within oneself, you know. Yeah. As, as no, a, I, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I definitely agree with that. For me, like my big thing that I consider smashing the state has basically been the concept or uh, Maslow's theory or hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Basically, once you get people to the level where, you know, they have all their basic needs set aside they're not going to need a state to protect them. They're not going to need someone to negotiate in behalf because they have their needs taken care of and they Mm -hmm. are more stable. And as a result, they're not desperate to, to make money in any way possible, whether that's joining a gang or, or um, anything really like, you know, that's when you, you start to see more criminal activity or violent activity is when people are not, um, you know, they don't have their basic needs met and they don't have a way to get them. So mm-hmm. they have to turn to less legitimate ways of it. So I, I when I think of smashing the state, I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. As a template, you mean? Like yeah, re- yeah, re- I, yeah. I, 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 because I, I hear a lot of people saying, "Oh, let's just, you know, destroy the government," and then it's like, "All right, then what? Have a big power vacuum?" Like, you know, I mean, we saw that in Syria. I mean, we didn't see like a 
the government completely collapsed, but we saw basically a failed state where all these insurgent groups came out of nowhere and wanted to seize the power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's what happens when a state falls mm-hmm. without any any like organization below. Yeah. Yeah, in, when I, in my travels in, uh, in Eastern Europe, I mean, I saw this very clearly, for example, in Bulgaria, when the, when the state collapsed there after they, they moved out of the communist system, the, the mafia were the ones that filled the power void and took mm-hmm. over because they were the next most organised group mm-hmm. in the country. And to this day, they're still, I mean, now they're more legitimate, yeah, in terms of of government. It's the same people. It's the same structures, really, you know, just the hierarchy of force and and the control of the environment through the hierarchy of force. It's just repeated. You know, I was talking to Suzanne about this earlier, like uh, we're working on making an NGO. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, we need to acknowledge as anarchists that we're, we're creating a little state like it's a it's 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 all just states within states it's all these arbitrary hierarchies within arbitrary hierarchies right um and so just i want to dovetail this back to let you continue like it's we can see what we've been talking about reflected in exactly what tyler just brought out that's going to happen in a power vacuum as that relates to it comes right down to physical force comes down to guns, right? That's the MO of the overriding macro architecture of organization right now, right? Is you can, you can idealize it all you want, but it's who's got the guns and who's pointing them at who, right? And go ahead, please. I mean, I think like in situations, again, I, I'm going to have to come back to this idea of community, mm-hmm. right? Because like... Um, there's always going to be a s- small group that has the monopoly on power, right? Mm. But and the applic- and you know the application of this power, whether they'll be able to apply it and be seen as a legitimate uh, sort of locus of power, is going to depend on the community's view of these uh, of this group. So, mm. like for example, I would I would talk about say when the Nazis invaded Greece. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't really they didn't have the support of the local community. They had support of small groups uh, of people within the community. Mm-hmm. But because the community was against them for a lot of very, really obvious reasons mm-hmm. and the community supported the, the communist uh, liberation movement, which was happening here. And even with you know, with uh, much less organisations, without the same uh, type of weapons, without access to to heavy weaponry and stuff like that, they still managed to beat the Nazis, mm-hmm. right? So w- while I think that, I mean, you know, Mao said what the, the power comes from the grows from the barrel of the gun, yeah, political yeah. power grows from the barrel of the gun. If for an authoritarian, this is like if you want to set up an authoritarian society, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah? But well, the thing is, will, what's the rest of the community going to do? Are they going to resist it or are they going to go with it? That's the other side of the conversation. The point, the point I was making out to dovetail off of what Tyler was speaking on 
was I think just it's just it's it's acknowledging that these hierarchical structures it doesn't matter the intent uh-huh. if it follows the same pattern that leads to authority by the gun that's uh-huh. going to it's it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna bring about predictable problems uh-huh. right. But that, that that comes back to what you said about the you know when you said that smashing the state for you meant to smash the state that's in your mind yeah right. it's like the situation is uh, quote about killing the cop that lives inside you yeah mm-hmm. if that's what you have in your mind if all you know are authoritarian power structures mm-hmm. and a centralized state structure and mm-hmm. representative democracy and stuff like that it's really fucking it's hard for you to see something outside of that. Mm-hmm. And then once your world starts to crumble around you, like mm-hmm. it did in, in countries like Syria, okay, Syria, a little bit different, but like when we talk about political power crumbling, not, right. not being broken, like mm-hmm. in, in Eastern Europe and stuff like that, mm-hmm. once, once the power structure started crumbling, people actually were just grasping because mm-hmm. nobody wants to leave, I mean, it might be uncomfortable where you're at, but at least you, you know where you're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and this is this is what you've been using. This is what you've been brought up in, and this is what you've seen all your life, and blah 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 blah. And then to mm-hmm. suddenly have this disappear, it's it's actually really really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, start, you just you just grasp whatever's around you, like in order to find some sense of stability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if that sense of stability comes from some sort of authoritarian group taking power, mm-hmm. like, for example, I can give you a, a clear example in Bulgaria, right? So after the state collapsed, because there was no police, and the army, the, the army p- personnel were selling off their weapons and stuff like that because they didn't have money for food, mm-hmm. right? So it became really normal to steal cars, yeah? Mm-hmm. You know, you stole a car, you sold it, you made some money, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. The best insurance company in in Bulgaria was mm-hmm. the insurance company that was set up by the mafia. <laughs> because if you stole a car that was insured by the company that was owned by the mafia, mm-hmm. it meant, number one, they found the fucking car. Mm-hmm. And number two, <laughs> you ended up dead in a ditch somewhere, Right. Yeah, and so like if if I have a car and I want to make sure that nobody steals it, I'm gonna I will go and I will give my money to the mafia to make sure that I have my car. Insurance. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think about the ideology and the moral imperative. Mm-hmm. 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 I'm yeah, just yeah. trying to survive here. Right. So when 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 I went to say to Bulgaria in '96, which is the second time that the currency completely collapsed. It completely collapsed the currency, right? There were uh, exchange uh, sort of booths all over the place because any any Bulgarian that had had gone through the first currency collapse had invested all, all their money in buying foreign currency. Mm-hmm. And every day they would go and they would change like, you know, five US dollars because they knew that today they're going to change it and it was going to be 20000 Bulgarian dollars. Tomorrow they're going to change. It's going to be 30,000 Bulgarian mm-hmm. dollars, yeah? Mm-hmm. you got to lock that into a foreign currency while you can. Exactly. But mm-hmm. people, so people weren't, it, they weren't looking 
for alternative forms of organization and stuff like that. They were too busy surviving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is why, again and again and again and again, I say community. Mm-hmm. Because mm. if you don't have something existing already, mm-hmm. once everything else starts to collapse around you, you're not going to have you're not going to have any support anywhere. You're not going to be able to. Oh, I'm going to set up community now because the state is falling. <laughs> too, too fucking late, man. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. You're not going to too late. It's, it, you know, uh, and so again, like I always underline community, 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 mm-hmm. community. This is the basis. If you don't have this basis, you can't even push for a, a change within the system, mm-hmm. let alone push for a change that's going to cause a rupture in the system so that, mm-hmm. you know, like a, anarchism can flower from this. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I see what I see a lot of millenarianism in uh, in in left wing politics. Millenarianism. So like this this idea that there'll be an end of time times time. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. Then yeah. after that, yeah, it's going to be heaven on earth. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Baked, that's baked into the culture big time. It expresses yeah. it expresses across multiple social and economic dimensions of very complex cognitively dissonant justifications. It's all religion. It's all fucking religion. (laughs) And and in in America, the actual religion doesn't change. All the shit inside of it is constantly metabolizing and adapting to maintain this overarching Mm -hmm. curiarchal religion. That's, you know, exactly what you just described. It's quite depressing. you but know. you see this, like I said, I mean, I have, I have friends that are really well-educated, leftists, blah, 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 and mm-hmm. yet, you know, they're always talking about, oh, when the ecological uh, fucking meltdown occurs, then everything's going <laughs> to... It's like, man, man, this is, the, this is no different to religious millenarianism, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. It's no different. Uh, it actually... One difference would be that at least religious millenarians, millenarian, millenarians set mm-hmm. up communities mm-hmm. yeah, they that, do that. They do work that towards this. The work towards this goal, mm-hmm. right? They definitely we're not do even that. doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're yeah. just we're just waiting. Uh, any minute now, the state will collapse and mm-hmm. we'll have anarchism. Mm-hmm. No, we're not going to have fucking <laughs> anarchism, like you said. Yeah. We're not going to have anarchism. Why? Because there's going to be no basis for anarchism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the basis for anarchism has to be now, has to start now. Not now, it has to start 30 years ago, 50 years ago. But now is, it's good enough. Let's start now. There is a window. Uh, there is, to, just to be practically analytical, there is a window right now where just mm-hmm. the capacity to learn has increased across the planet. Mm-hmm. So that's new. And I think we yeah. would be wise to honor that. Right. Because mm-hmm. when people are coming into this conversation, they're jumping into a gigantic river of trauma that if a person doesn't have the calibrations to meet that, they could blow any number of circuits. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, that can result in outbursts in any number of ways that can cause harm to oneself or others. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Just, just 
the practical application of this is that I think it's important to have compassion for people that are new to this conversation and mm-hmm. are just struggling to comprehend the scales that are being talked about mm-hmm. that are so removed from their immediate everyday experiences yeah. and yet, yet shoved in their faces mm-hmm. through like thousands and thousands of different filters, including their own right now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, there's a window opening right now, but it's actually more like a ton of shit is aligning. Right. And part of that alignment is directly related to the amount of trauma that is becoming metabolized by the planet just through awareness. Right. Even the even the opposite energy, the deniers, right, are still Mm -hmm. filling the conversation with energy in their desire to negate the conversations that we're trying to have that and that overload of information and access to the human populace is going to hit a point where based on the trauma, just human beings all around the planet will adapt because that's what we do and go, these are the conversations around these core methodologies that we can all communicate to do literally around the world. And that's going to look different all over the world. But the, the, the capacity that you, Greg, could take all your lived experience right now and we can facilitate just dumping that into some random person's living room across any point in the planet, that's the kind of power we have right now. And that's the kind of questions that people who are new to this conversation can't start asking themselves. What do I think the state is? What do I want? Why am I afraid of it or not? What do I cling to? What do I not? What is community to me? What has it meant to me? All those really important questions. We have this capacity now to process information where we can churn through that on a huge level real fast. You saw that with the um, Arab Spring. Right. That's a direct example of how digital interconnection, which we have access to right now, massively shaped. And that conversation has spiraled for years since then. Um, mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to bring that into the conversation in the spirit of compassion. Because, and, and so two new people that are in this conversation who are perhaps close to blowing a circuit or not, like if you're new to this conversation, you haven't probably felt real suffering yet (laughs) from an empathic consideration if you're if you're stepping into the idea of community on a large scale that involves patterns around the world and you think you hurt now wait till you consider what that is times a billion right and that pain is directly related to how alone you are not and that is the critical intersection that's happening right now with this window is there's a a lot of people that are realizing they're not alone and they're all speaking different languages, <laughs> um, even if they speak the same native tongue too, right? So that's the challenge, right? That's, that's the joy I have and even like being grateful to have you guys here to even talk about this and just be overwhelmed by the amount of experience you bring is that this conversation can bring tools that can unlock these patterns to create new creativity, right? And we talked about this in the podcast earlier, diversity of tactics, Right? If you're a purist, what you're saying is that there are some tactics I'm not willing to employ for my goal, right? So if someone enters this conversation and they're new and they have some of that ideological purity in them, understanding yeah. that they're going to be operating from something that seems reasonable to them. Yeah. And if they're hitting a gigantic shit wave of trauma <laughs> and just mm-hmm. getting just buffeted by it, they're going to hold on, as you said, Greg, to whatever is familiar. 
right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a bridge right there. That's a bridge in time that mm-hmm. we kind of have to share as community is that like, it's a constant conversation of the meaning of trauma and taking that trauma and collectively and individually putting all of our efforts into healing it because yeah. it's worth it because it's fundamentally worth it because the more trauma that we heal and the more trauma that we cease to maintain, it's just blossoms all the way up, right? That's anarchy. It's the order within the chaos that is fundamentally overwhelming for an individual to perceive, right? So mm-hmm. I just, I give thanks to even be here with y'all speaking. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to say that. We're coming mm-hmm. up on two hours now. It's, uh, how, how's everybody feeling? You want to rock on some more topics or feel like maybe wrapping it up? I mean, if if we do continue, we could always split up into two parts. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know how many people want to sit down for three hours all at once. And uh, I've enjoyed it from time to time, especially with podcasts that are long form that I like. Yeah, I'll, I'll just play it. I'll play the yeah. like the three hour podcast over like several days, mm-hmm. just listening and listening. <laughs> well, well, I I just wanted to make a point about them. You know, I, I've been seeing a lot of individualists um egoists etc anti-civ people in the anarchy community and the one thing that i just i i can't seem to get across to them the reason why i believe so strongly in community networks even if they're decentralized broken down into their smallest pieces they are necessary people are not like having individualism is not going to work because if every, if, you know, if we're going to assume that we're not going to enter a utopian society, which I think is fair to assume, you know, no one, you know, we're not going to enter this point wherever, where there's no conflict at all. So now you have to ask yourself, if you have a strong network of people who have all their necessities taken care of, <laughs> are they going to be willing to risk their own lives, pick up a gun to fight for another person? Mm-hmm. You know, this is the point that I really want people to understand is that when everyone has everything taken care of, whenever, when the community is there, all right, it doesn't matter if one person rises up and, is a dick, you know, there, there's always going to be that guy or woman or whatever. Um, but are are people, are people (laughs) going, are people going to stand up with that person when they have no incentive to do so? You know, so that's why we really need a strong mutual aid network to make sure that people don't have the incentive to join an authoritarian regime. So. Right, exactly. Yeah, we keep coming, we just keep circling back to mutual aid and community. It's just like, like I had mentioned, you know, for me, that is the revolution because once we create that foundation, it's just, it goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Mutual aid, compassion, anarchy in the age of illusion. Word. Sounds like the next podcast. Maybe. 
I got to tell you, it's just like doing this podcast is cool. We're, the way we're planning on doing it, as far as it's playing out, as I can see, is we're going to record all the episodes and then organize it into a, like a, a, a season one release, right? <laughs> okay. Because basically that's, as far as I can tell, how we're going to make looking like we're figuring this out as we go look like uh, uh, slick. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, we meant to put all professional. These out. Uh, yeah, yeah. professional. Yeah, we we totally meant to put these all out as a package deal. We're not overwhelmed by doing this at all. Like, <laughs> um, we're not, yeah. you know, just winging it or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I mean, I I'm just really loving this process. This is. I don't know. I, I could keep talking if you guys want to, but I just wanted to, this just came up to me as an inspiration talking about ideological purity. The person who helped me understand dropped like a little link of logic, like plink into my little matrix that helped me understand what ableism is on a macro level. So I was like, that's it. That fucking, it, it just, it makes sense. Wasn't it was an anarcho-capitalist. Can you believe it? Did you shoot him afterwards? No, actually, we've been we've, we've been we've been we've been connected since because he he, he calls himself an anar- he calls himself an anarcho capitalist, but he just consistently understands and expands with veracity and like onus the principles that we're talking about. But he calls himself an anarcho capitalist, so I'm like, yeah. The, what 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 are heads? What are his ANCAP solutions to ableism? I don't think he has ANCAP solutions. I think he's just like, yeah, we got to do mutual aid so we're all stable so we can make badass businesses. I think that's his core thing. He's okay. like, it's not about making, you know, he, he, he's completely just goes under the whole argument of, well, you got to pull yourself up with your bootstraps. It's like, no, we need healthy communities. And yeah, these people oh. are being racist. And yeah, these people are being this and yada, yada, yada. But you got to still do something about that. What are you going to do about it? And he's like, it, it, we got to do this so we can stabilize capitalism, mm. I think is his whole thing, right? And But, but how are you going to have mutual aid if all the property is owned by a few people? That's there that's not a conversation i'm even interested in having yeah yeah i just wanted to say that like, well, I, right I, because because there's no lack of access to that conversation what's interesting about that conversation is someone who has specifically positioned themselves in a place that seems ideological uh, ideologically opposite that is tactically and analytically like the same and i and it blows me the fuck away it, it it was the first time I was like, I need to look at myself and try to figure out what I'm already making up that may be based in validity, yet also may be missing something that I also need to learn about, right? Like, for instance, making an NGO. I hate it. I don't like doing it at all. I don't want to do it. But I'm doing it because it's an existing pattern that tactics can be applied to in a diversity of tactics. Am I going to stop doing my own mutual aid? Hell no. Am I going to stop doing my own community organizing? Hell no. In fact, my goal in making this NGO that Tyler and Suzanne and I are working on is, is largely to hack the distinction and just create a vessel of safety to try and channel the, the, the various forms of very dynamic anarchist community organizing that are all trying to, to work together. You know what I mean? 
And I hope that more people do this. I hope there's like, I'm forced to do this in a market where I have to perceive competition, which is a fucked up Mm -hmm. thing when I'm not like the goal is to encourage cooperation. Mm -hmm. So like talking to an ANCAP who's like right on the cusp of that conversation is weird, right? (laughs) It's just really fucking weird. And then I've since met other people that I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. This is your, this is where you exist. And then they'll, they'll express things that I'm like, okay, you still exist in that place, but why the fuck are you talking about what you're talking about with such a most emotional investment? That doesn't fit. It's actually contra- contradictory to what you're claiming you are. So, but I don't want to be like, stop talking about building community, right? Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to talk about building community because you're this other position, right? Especially when the dynamics and the complexities of it are usually so contextual that their position becomes very reasonable based on what they have around them, right? So it's complicated, and that's where bridge building can get really dangerous in the age of conflict that we live in, you know? And, I uh, mean, one, one, one thing, uh, for example, you know, community building. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take, take – I'll, I'll give you another example of how uh, the neo-Nazis used community building here in Greece right. in order to gain popular support, right? Right. So what they were doing in the middle of the um, of the recession was to offer material support, food, clothing, and stuff like that, only to the Greek people, right? That were suffering uh, in the society, mm-hmm. right? Now, um, the motivation behind that, obviously, was to draw people towards their their organisation to get support mm-hmm. for their organisation, mm-hmm. also to put across this picture that they have they're not just out to kill people, but they have this sort of uh, social program where which will benefit uh, members of society and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Now, the funny thing is that the funny thing, <laughs> the it, during the Nazi occupation of Greece. One of the the key recruiting um, strategies uh, of the, the the national liberation movement, which was a communist movement, which is it was a Stalinist movement, was exactly this. It was setting up um, soup kitchens, giving food, helping uh, widows uh, whose uh, you know husbands had been killed in, during the occupation and stuff like that. So. The strategy itself, I mean, you can, with some strategies, you can divorce them from the ideology. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. You can't, because, like, you've got Nazis using the same strategy mm-hmm. and you have, you know, communists using the same strategy against Nazis. That it was, It's identical strategy. Food, not bombs. It's mm-hmm. the same thing, isn't it? It's yeah. providing material support mm-hmm. to, to needy people in the community. Mm-hmm. But the motivation for doing it is different in in each case, yeah. Right. So right. obviously, I mean, you can learn things from you can learn things from anybody, yeah. You can and like one of the things that I would do is I, I would you know I would stick it to my Stalinist friends. I go look at what the fucking look what the Nazis are doing. <laughs> look, look, see, look, they're helping people. You guys, you're just fucking talking about. Uh, you know, helping people and the, the economic oppression and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And they're using the same strategy that your fucking, your people used 60, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. So why aren't you doing it now? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So, no, I mean, 
this is again it's going back to this idea of ideological purity mm-hmm. it's like uh, you know cleaning uh, graffiti is uh, middle class uh, bourgeois um, and it's you know it's playing to the sensibilities of the <laughs> of, of housewives right, you know? right it's like right. yeah it is <laughs> yeah. but diversity you also need housewives baby. in the movement you exactly. can't just have fucking vegan uh, under undernourished vegan uh, punk rockers yeah, <laughs> and, and expect to set up an anarchist society mm-hmm. yeah. based on just on that. You can't either. Your either anarchism is inclusive of all people, or it's just something else. It's not anarchism. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it, it misses out <laughs> on uh, finding anarchists that are that may come off more as a, you know, more normal or conservative, I guess, but actual anarchists, you know, different points in their lives, you know, um, but like you said, yeah, it's not just this group of people doing this particular thing, it's going, it needs to be inclusive. So. No, it needs to be inclusive, definitely. Yeah. Because otherwise you fall, also you fall, and this is something that I did when I was younger, yeah? And I'm still guilty of it now, I'd have to say, once in a while. But you also fall into this feeling that you're somehow superior to somebody else because of what Mm -hmm. you're thinking and what they're thinking. Oh, Mm -hmm. look at you. It's the the classic thing that you get from the the libertarians, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're all sheeple. Yeah. We're we're free. We're the enlightened ones. You don't understand what's happening. But we, you see anarchists falling into this all the time, yeah? Yeah, and you, and you know, that's interconnected to ableism. And that's connected to ableist language, like idiot, retard, stupid, all that, all that shit. It's all aspects of that ingrained, curiarchal perception, you know? That's why, like, I mean, I'm going to keep quietly speaking from the back of the room, like, ableist language is like one of the most accessible forms of revolutionary change that anybody can make other than taking a nap whenever the fuck you want. <laughs> like in terms of accessible praxis, changing that ingrained superiority of the able and the unable, that's just got to go like from every brain. <laughs> and diversity of tactics, baby. Hit it linguistically, hit it tactically in your relationships, hit it you know, philosophically in your mind as you postulate things. Where is my emotional desire to have dominion over somebody based on ability, whether that's any kind of, they could, they could be a billionaire, but I have the capacity to drop a rock on their head, right? Like that's an ability, that is a power structure I have over them. And, and there's no moralizing around that, just identifying that inherent knee-jerk desire to, and this is rampant in anarchist culture, to like, oh, I'm, I'm superior, Right. And, and the first hinge of such a person is almost always because you're stupid or crazy. That's the first go-to of like the reactionary is ableist language. That's, that's really where I've noticed the pattern. It's like, it's not just the ableist language kind of links a lot of bullshit. It's that it, it collects in certain points in conflict. And it's always the first point of conflict where people are just there to fight. That's the first fucking go-to again and again and again. And you just see derivatives of it repeat. In, in mm. creative ways, but it's the same knee-jerk, I'm better, you're less, you know? That's, that's a hack thing in my head that I've, I've, I've seen. Hmm. 
Guys, I'm going to call it a night because it's okay. like one o'clock here. Man, oh, thank, you for, thank you for soldiering. <laughs> uh, it's been my pleasure. It is a gift. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, sorry really for talking that. English, endless garbage. Oh man, <laughs> it was it was it was beautiful garbage. Yeah. Beautiful garbage. Swimming. Beautiful. <laughs> Which you know, just to soothe, just to soothe any rumors going around about me. Yes. I appreciate garbage. That does not <laughs> inherently mean that I am a gang of raccoons in a human suit. Uh, so raccoons are fine, man. Raccoons we are good. You can just staunch that right now. Okay, I see you guys it. now, Dan. All right, much you love, Greg. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. So nice right. to see you.